With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom. Simply visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate to make a difference today. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio. This is Greenwashed. I'm Jashpreet Boparai here with my co-host, Don Nicholson. Now, I don't know about you, but these days we hear a lot of jargon that puzzles me, that confuses me, because I've always thought of food as food, agriculture, but we hear a whole lot about food systems, food sovereignty, so on and so forth. So, so much so that New Zealand, we also have this program called Fit for a Better World. The website is www.fitforabetterworld.org.nz, which the government says is a program of work towards 2030, that date, 2030, committed towards meeting greatest challenges faced by the New Zealand food and fiber sector. And delving into some of their uh, documents about what they do, this caught my attention. Food, they're talking of latest innovations in food systems, and they talk about food as software, food which integrates latest advancements in science and technology to make food production radically easier, safer, and faster, and disrupt the food industry and traditional production methods. Now, I don't know about you, but that sort of a thing worries me. What are we doing? What is going on? And perhaps this needs to be broken down for the layperson, such as me. I thought I'm farming, Dawn is farming, and that's what food systems are. But there is a whole lot here than what meets the eye. And to get into this today, we are very happy to have on board with us Kate Mason. Kate is a blogger. She's got a substack, a content, uh, and I should say a whole lot of content she's created from Australia. And she joins us today. Kate, welcome on to Greenwashed. Uh, thank you, Jaspreet. And hello, Don. Hi there. Hey. So tell us a bit more uh, to our listeners, Kate, about yourself. Um, well, I'm a member of Community Voice Australia, which is um, fairly newly formed, and we are advocating for government and public-private partnership transparency and accountability, and that the community has a genuine voice and a genuine place at the table for anything that affects their lives and the environment. So that's where we're placing ourselves. I think the heart of where we're really placing ourselves is that over time, you see more and more groups being picked off and demonised. So for this conversation, we'll talk about the farmers. That's happening very much to farming farming populations around the world, that they're the problem and they're the issue with climate change. And as crises you know, are created and um, come about, there's a lot of people turning on each other rather than actually identifying the larger global aspect to what's going on. Yeah, isn't it? This summer, I have been riveted to my various feeds and news, seeing farmer protests all over Europe. Sri Lanka has already gone down the gurgler a couple of years ago. Protests in India have ramped up. I saw a lot of farmers in Australia during the Reckless Renewables Rally. I believe that happened 6th of Feb, so just earlier this month. Yep. And yeah, farmers are not happy, are they? No, they're not happy because of the renewable, the amount of renewables and the um, compulsory acquisition of their land. So there's a number of reasons that farmers are really unhappy about it. It's the transmission lines as well, and the amount of that's going to go over prime farming land. Um, without any real community consultation, 
without any without the community's voices and the farmers' voices being heard. It's not just the farmers that are fighting back about this. It's really long-term environmentalists as well who are seeing the absolute destruction to the natural environment, as well as community members who just, you know, really care about their actual local towns and, and what's actually going to happen because it destroys communities. It, it absolutely destroys and decimates communities with the renewables coming through. It's very hard to live around the wind turbines. Mm-hmm. And they can just, they are, you know, moving into compulsory acquisition of farmland. One thing that caught my attention over the last week, Kate, was this uh, post on Facebook from uh, Senator Malcolm Roberts. And I couldn't find the source, but what he'd written was that a recently, uh, now a deleted document from the Australian government stated that 70, 70, 70% of Australian farmland might have to be sacrificed for these uh, uh, ultimate renewables that are going to save us all. And that was staggering if this is true. That's staggering. 70% of Australian farmland. But of course, that's been deleted. That's nowhere to be found. Do you, is that the one that's about Victoria? I saw one that somebody sent me and I think it was from, um, I think. I it, wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, Danistan. Yeah. Yeah. And that it was around that 80%, 70 to 80% of farmland in Victoria, but they were talking about that prior to having the offshore wind turbines. So, right. yeah, I had a, a little look at that because I thought the, that's astounding. Yeah. But it's a huge amount of land that needs to exactly. be Exactly. The fact that we would even consider something like this when at the same time you have the Food and Agriculture Organization, the FAO and others, UN, WEF, all talking about how nearly a billion of the world, you know, the world's population goes hungry. What are we doing to ourselves? And, well, and why? And who is doing this? Yeah. Okay. So that's the question. That's I went and spoke at that renewables rally because I think it's really important to identify, you know, when you see at the protests, as you as you talked about, there's protests all around the world and it's all about the government's um, net zero plans. Mm. That's what the farms are protesting. They're all being pushed off the land or, you know, it's it's very concerning to farming land. But and then you see the the signs, no farmers, no food. But this isn't the reality of what they're planning for our food systems. There is a global, very transparent agenda to transform our food systems into synthetic biology, which is pretty mostly lab-created food. So, you know, I want to talk a little bit more about that because I think it's really important that we understand the bigger picture and not think it's just coming from our governments. There, you know, it, it is the the United Nations and the food the United Nations has an arm, the Food and Agricultural Organization. Yeah. They signed a partnership in 2020 with um, CropLife to transform our food systems. CropLife is Bayer Monsanto, Syngenta, you know, um, Corteva. It's the big corporations that have the biotech and also have 75% of the world's um, seed stock. Right. Yeah. What could go wrong? Yeah, say what could go wrong? And you'd wonder, uh, they are obviously adapting to this new future in advance effectively because you'd wonder why they would want to get out of the current business they're in. I mean, it's been pretty successful. It's uh, where they've made their bread and butter and their and their innovations for a century or more. Mm. I mean, even New Zealand had a company called uh, GlaxoSmithKline. Um, ended up being one of the biggest companies in the world on, on the... Um, drug markets and things and um and you know now is it it's all different all of a sudden kate what's what's changed you know we we just don't need all that anymore no so they they also do um 
there's some tricky things in there. So they're, they're ho- if I talk about the food technologies, and I'm not saying I understand them all, they're, they're very complex. It's actually hard to find the actual information on how they do anything. Um, but they're talking, so Australian governments are going into partnership with precision fermentation. Um, so that's that's using, that's using um, it uses microbes, but it tweaks the DNA of the microorganisms to produce a specific molecule that they wouldn't actually make. So you can make animal proteins and enzymes and fats from mm-hmm. this microbe that's been genetically manipulated. And so that's just done in big, you know, big vats hugely energy intensive but the government in Queensland has um, signed a partnership with a group called Cauldron a corporation called Cauldron and the CSIRO with their venture capital arm main sequence is also funding them out in Orange in New South Wales and that is valued at um, one point so precision fermentation globally is valued at 1.3 1.93 billion in 2022 and is poised to reach approximately US dollars 60, 63 billion by 2032. So that's a really big aspect. And that's going to actually create a lot of things. So the CSIRO has a synthetic biology roadmap where they talk about precision fermentation. And basically, you modify the microbe's DNA so it can um, create this specific protein or molecule, and that's how it's done. But they don't. It's I, I do need to do more work to actually try to find some information about what that actually is, what that means, and that product is not considered GMO. It is not considered GMO. So, no. listeners, if you've just joined us, uh, Kate is referring to CSIRO. This is the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization of the Australian government. I would say your peak scientific body. And uh, we are talking about, for lack of a better term, Frankenstein food here. Yeah, and they, and they say food can now be produced without the use of living things, soil or conventional farming practices. They, you do need farming, you do need some sort of crops because they use sugar or they'll use something to actually grow and, and you know, to create this product. But it will be, it won't be like, so there'll be some crops that are still going, but it won't be the, you know, the main amounts of food that we have now on farming land. It's, it's odd because I'm reading a New Zealand website called MPG Food Tech and it says one significant issue associated with precision fermentation is the unnaturalness of such materials. GMO foods are currently highly controlled in many countries and avoided by many consumers. Um, I, I sense there is mass resistance. Uh, yeah, in, in reality, there's, there's a small market potential at the moment. Yeah. You know, the, the the matter of getting this to a bigger market is going to be done by what means effectively. Is it by coercion around climate policy? Is it uh, by this um, repatriation or the biodiversity credit systems or the carbon credit systems or the, the closing down of lands from farming? Uh, is that going to make it easier for them? Is that all part of the big picture, Kate? Yeah, so it's very much going to be, I think they're bottling up and destroying the food supply chain. And so I talked to two farmers in my area. We're very lucky to have regenerative farmers. And I talked to both of them and it's getting harder and harder. So abattoirs are closing down or they will only take the big guys. They won't actually take in the small, you know, 25 acre farmer. Um, And so you've got, and then the costs are just getting more and more prohibitive. So if you're a small scale 
you're needing more and more licenses and more and more costs with that. And then the transport costs to be able to move, you know, to be able to do what you're doing is getting prohibitive. So it's actually becoming harder to keep on the land. And then I guess you've got the renewables coming through the land and people, you know, if they're right near host farms with wind turbines, it actually destroys your capacity to live in your property and enjoy it. So people will move out. In Australia, I think it was 20, it's either 2021 to 2022, I think that's the years we had 5% drop in agricultural land in one year. Wow. So it's starting to happen. And then you get the big guys coming through. Um, Murdoch's son-in-law came through and is is buying up big properties. Rupert Murdoch, you're saying? Yeah, his son-in-law. So you've got the big guys, you know, which which mirrors what's happening in America with Bill Gates. So, you know, when it, as people get knocked out of the land, you get the big corporate entities uh, or the big players coming in and buying that land. And they're not going to necessarily live on that land and care for it and, you know, care for their communities. So you're actually destroying basically communities. And that's what's happening um, around with the renewables as well. Yeah. And, and you know, Part of my ethos uh, nowadays compared to perhaps 10, 15 years ago is to look out for the family farmer, the individual owner operator, actually. And it's, it is getting harder and harder for them uh, in the face. Uh, just it's all about, you know, we always used to talk about scale of enterprise and, you know, I was guilty. I had to expand my scale to survive, uh, but I am still relatively small, uh, a small player. But in the end, the game the pointy end happens no matter your scale and and there's just less owners to to talk to and and if you're a if you're a corp, a government of the world talking to less farmers is far easier than talking to an organization like the NFF with thousands of farmers in there and their purview so look you can understand well I don't like understanding it but I can see the game in town is to have less farmers not more I'd say good luck in India trying to have less farmers, Jaspreet. It's very, not going go, to so. go, go well, is it? No, it is not. I often think what needs to be done by force in India, because the size of holdings, you know, the average holding is less than a hectare, two acres mm-hmm. or less. Uh, so you have millions of people depending, hundreds of millions dependent on farming, whereas here you don't need to use force because you have larger land holdings, less people. The pen is mightier than the sword. Just keep legislating, keep legislating, make the rules harder and harder, and the farmers keep trying to comply till they die, virtually. Mm-hmm. So so going back to your cell-cultured meats and um, the vowel product of quail um, meat, yeah. uh, cultured okay. meat, just, sorry, going right to that. I see that in uh, 2013, a Dutch laboratory made the first synthetic meat and then there was synthetic chicken in 2021 uh, into Singapore. What gives you of any sort of feeling that this is going to be as expansive? Because it doesn't look like it's really taken off yet. Now, I know that evolution does take time and markets do have that sort of slow growth before they they do what's called the, you know, they get up the bell curve. You're saying... Perhaps, well, the, you're not saying it's in, it's in writing that by 2032, we're going to be $60 billion. It appears to, in my reading, that's a long bow to be drawing just yet. Look, that's the, just the precision fermentation. I actually think that one's going to be really strong. Oh, um, so the lab-cultured cell quail is different. That's lab, lab meat. 
Sorry, so I got that wrong. Okay. No, yes, so there's a couple of angles to yep. this. So the lab meat, if I just talk about the vow, the vow food is making the first lab um, cell, lab cultured cell quail, and that's just going through. So New Zealand and Australia have the same food standards body, the food yep. standards Australia, New Zealand body. So they're, they are in the process of amending the food code to allow, at the moment, at the moment, what it is, you're not allowed to uh, allow a new novel food in. So something that doesn't have a history or I can't quite remember the whole parameter. So they have to change the code to allow this this lab this lab meat in. So that is in process. We put a big, the public submissions close, I think early February. They've got another round where they're going to open it up for public submissions. So we had a really good look at, at the company and we, and also, you know, this lab meat and what's the processes. Um I'm, I'm, I'm similar to you, Don. It use, it's incredibly expensive and it uses an enormous amount of energy. It's highly toxic as well. So I'm not sure. Like sometimes I wonder, are they intentionally? But I do think the precision fermentation seems to be really taking off where you can get these alternative proteins. So the lab-cultured quail, um, yeah, I guess I can I can talk more broadly about it. But specifically to ask your question, I'm not 100% sure now, but I, I do feel like the normal food processes and markets and the food chains are being broken. So at the same time, they are talking a lot about this lab meat's going to come in and it's going to transform the food system. I'm not 100% sure it is either. So the lab quail that they're putting through at the moment is just going to be very specialised. Val Food is partnering with some chefs and they just want to make it this sort of novel food in restaurants, but they also want to put it into pastries and stuff like that. So, but in terms of being concerned about this lab, I think what needs to be on the public radar about it is that they had, so we're asked as a public to put in submissions about to the FSANZ. They want to hear what we've got to say. When you go and look at the proposal, and, and they're saying that they've got no problems with the FSANZ saying, we have no problems with this. We think it's going to be fine. If you go in and look at actually what VOW has put in, we can't see about, the public cannot see about 30 different documents outlining, you know, how, what, outlining their tests, what their results were, um, you know, like the processes involved in this lab meet. There's 30 different aspects that we're not allowed to see because it comes under commercial confidential commercial information. So the public is sort of expected to eat this or consume this without knowing anything about the processes, which is utterly concerning. And they also dumb it down. So when they're talking about mm. the quail, they do literature searches. So Val does literature searches to say, but they, then they'll actually talk about, so they say it's a novel food, but then they'll go, we've done a literature search on quail and there are no issues. They're not doing literature search on cell quail. So they're not the same things, but they, they're not the same they, do that bait, they do that bait and switch thing where it's like there's no issues with quail, so there's no issues with lab quail. You know, so but they're not the same thing at all. Like the, to actually get a cell and to be able to grow it into some product that resembles some form of meat um, takes is enormously intensive and has enormous amounts of processes in there. And then they just put synthetic vitamins and minerals into the lab quail and compare it to the real quail. So there's <laughs> the, that's the way they do it. And it, so it's very dumbed down to the public and it's actually incredibly, there's, it's just such a big arena to try and get your head around. But the who does have a food safety aspects of cell-based food where they do detail a whole bunch of things that it goes through, like for about 50 or 60 pages. Um, 
compared to what our food does. So, so in answering your question as to um, there's very big players behind our food. So you've got Blackbird and they are a venture capital firm. So they put money. You've also got a Saudi Arabian oil company in there as well, get funding our food. But you've got, so Blackbird, if I just stick to Blackbird because it's more relevant to Australia, that is, there are two men that started up Blackbird and um, one of them is the ex-CEO of CSIRO. Oh, wow. So that's your peak Australian scientific body. Yeah, and he was in there. I don't know what year he started. Maybe I'll just say this, like uh, 2008, 16 to 2023. Mm -hmm. He was the CEO. He changed when he was there. There were many scientists that were fired and he made the he made the frame that we're no longer going to look at climate change modeling we're going to look at climate change mitigation so climate change mitigation is things such as this sort of food this is they they say that we need these these synthetic foods because of climate to feed the world it's sdg number 2 feed the world zero hunger from the united nations and it's climate action sdg 13 they're the main two that's quoted as to why we need to create this synthetic food market for the world. It's for the world. So, yeah, so you've got him in there as Blackbird and then you have Black uh, CSIRO start up their own venture capital firm called Main Sequence and the other co-owner or co-founder of Blackbird is the partner in with CSIRO for their venture capital firm. Oh, my God. So you've got CSIRO completely implanted. Then their then their venture capital firm funds synthetic food, you know, startups. So they're they're, they're very invested. You've got really big players in there invested in this lab meat. So I think that's also important for people to understand. Well, wow. yeah, the legislation for convenience, eh? All around this, Jasper, we often talk about legislative privilege. It looks like. Uh, there's lots of people milking the legislation that's, you know, we talked about net zero or, or climate policy. And, yeah, look, it's, uh, well, it's there for the taking. It's yeah. there for the taking. And you can see that uh, they'll seduce as much government funding as they possibly can and uh, spit spit the government shareholding out some other way and pocket it all for themselves. It, it's how it works, isn't it? Yeah. So, you follow the signs, you get to the money. Kate's Substack, in case you've not come across this, is kate739.substack.com or just look up Kate Mason Australia on Substack. And the byline, Kate, I think on your Substack is, and I don't have it in front of me, is decoding for uh, the fourth industrial revolution, 4IR. Yeah, narratives. 4IR narratives, which is the fourth industrial revolution is in front of us. Synthetic biology or lab meets, or as I say, the wrecking of conventional agriculture and the wrecking of our health is ahead of us. But just before we went for a break, we were, spoke, we were speaking about lab, lab-made quail. Kate has done three substacks on this recently, and they're well worth a read. Mind you, it, they are not light. She goes into the funding and she follows the money trail of why and how this is happening, who are the big players. But one thing, I want to talk about here right now because they are pushing this sort of stuff, Kate, for planetary health. But what does it mean for our health? And this paragraph from your substack caught my attention. The big honking asterisk is that normal meat cells don't just keep dividing forever. To get cell cultures to grow at rates big enough to power a business, several companies are quietly using what is called immortalized cells 
something most people have never eaten intentionally. Immortalized cells, you say, are a staple of medical research, but they are technically precancerous and in some cases fully cancerous. Mm. Wow. I know, it's extraordinary. So, yes, so you get a cell and then you have to make that cell multiply itself um, using fetal bovine serum or other sort. They, they, this Val Food says they don't use fetal bovine serum. Um, they use some other medium to keep growing the cells. So our cells don't naturally just keep, like that is a cancerous cell where a cell just complete, you know, keeps developing yeah. and doesn't stop. So I don't know how our food are doing that because, as I said before, there's 30 documents that we're not allowed to see. So they're not going to tell you the process where, whereby they do that because that's their, you know, that's confidential commercial information. So how do they do that? But it is a precancerous cell state. There's nothing that can be said about that. That is 100% what it is. And then if you've got cells dividing indefinitely, they can come up with different gene patterns. Um, so, yeah, you, you're ending up with something who knows what it is. Now, the, the big massive thing that we actually, because we put a submission in around this, is we want we want forensic audit. It's not okay that we can't see which company gives the cell, you know, originally. Um, mm. you know, the cell line and creates that cell line. It's not okay that we don't know any of the processes. It's not all right that we don't know who in FSANZ is saying yes to this being put into our food market. If people are going to, and there's no testing, there's no testing to this. So when they say, as I said before, when they actually go literature search for safety, they're just comparing it to actual real quail. That is their literature search. It's it, So there's no actual studies done on what this does to the human body or what happens how, how what's the health implications of this so they need to be a hundred percent responsible and transparent for who is actually responsible and and that it, people can be sued for this well so if they get it wrong uh who is indemnified uh, you know if they got an indemnity does it go back on the government of the or you know the authority within government that is um, going to be liable if something is wrong it sounds a little bit like the indemnity given by our governments on mRNA vaccines. Safe and effective. Yes, and yeah, and this is slightly different, but um, similar. Mm. In, in I'm going on to a slightly different topic. At the moment, crop life is there's a bill going through in America to indemnify um, to so that Bayer Monsanto crop life companies cannot be sued. So you've got crop life partnering with the United Nations FAO. Um, and then they're at the moment angling to get a bill through, an act through in America so they cannot be sued because Bayer Monsanto is being sued all over the world at the moment because of glyphosate and cancer risks and cancer. So, yes, that's, there's a bigger picture to this no transparency, no accountability picture that we're seeing forming around our food systems. So so just on that, you know, the sort of policeman in me says, um, gee, that sounds like a buy-off. Uh, that sounds like uh, the big corps are saying, uh, we'll we'll capitulate to government's uh, wishes of the day, uh, provided you take the heat off us on uh, perhaps the glyphosate angle. Yeah, anything, anything, because they, they, they are going to transform. So crop life is going to transform our food systems. So what does that mean if they cannot be sued in any way, shape or form? 
Wow. So the justification for this application to Food Safety Authority Australia and New Zealand was given by WOW, V-O-W. This is an Australian-based company, I think a Sydney-based company. It said that the United Nations has stated that human population will grow to $9.7 billion. Cultured meat can help support the growing demand for protein, make the food industry more resilient. There's a $25 billion opportunity for uh, cultured meat industry globally and Australia and New Zealand are going to seize the moment. And yet, when you asked, the requests for the following were all denied. Mycoplasma reports, confidential information, sterility report, confidential, retrovirus, confidential, bacteria reports, confidential, heavy metal reports, confidential, anti, I could go on and on. And they are putting this in our food systems. Well, yeah, yeah, with no transparency and with, no accountability. With no transparency. What is WOW Systems today? I mean, they are pretty confident, aren't they, that all of this is going to be approved? They are now gunning for a second factory, second Yes, they unit? are. They're bringing up a second factory. Um, I'm just having to remember now. But when I listened to Alex, so there's two co-founders of WOW Foods, but um, I think his name's Alex is one of them. He and he, this is basically a quote. I'm paraphrasing. He talked about farming, and some he was talking. So there's different these food futurists, as they can also be called. They just say in the future, it's we're not talking about farmers making food. We're talking about tech companies making food. So that is it in a nutshell. But he, this Alex guy, was talking about someone said to him in an interview, "How are farmers going to go with this transformation of our food systems, where it becomes created in labs?" He said just the same way that people still that people used to ride horses because you know they needed it for transport and now they're just a luxury item that people can just ride for luxury the wealthy can ride for luxury farming conventional farming will will go the same way so there'll be some ethical farms potentially left but they will only be for the wealthy who want to hark back to the bygone days they will not be the mainstream food so in a nutshell, he's basically saying this young guy who's getting very heavily funded by oil companies and CSIRO ex-employees, um, he's talking about this regenerative farming and farming that will be for the elitists, not for us, not for the people. Yeah. And, and to me that is so, that just, I cannot believe anyone could listen to that and not want to just say this is this is such a horrendous model. But in his mind, and it's probably quite right in his own mind, he thinks, I think he probably genuinely thinks, he is saving the climate and bringing in zero hunger for the world under the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And that's what they do, these big corporates and everything. So Bill Gates at COP27, I think it was, was saying, you know, here we are, we've got all these big tech firms and big corporations. We've got these young global change makers coming in. We're going to back them and partner with them. And if you look at Blackbird, which I talked to you about before, who's funding Val, you'll just see a whole bunch of 30 to 40-year-olds, you know, kind of like really cool guys and, and women, young men and young women. They say things like on their, their website, we don't wear, we, we wear T-shirts. You know, they have these little pithy, you know, like, we're so cool, we just wear T-shirts, we're like, really, you know, one of you guys. You have to search really hard to find that the two co-founders of Val, uh, these older two men, 
who have, you know, worked with the military, have, you know, these very different backgrounds to the persona that's put out through the website, which is, you know, very much catered to the young people and trying to get the young people in. And that's what they're doing. There's young people at the front and then there's this, the massive corps at the back, massive. the corporate entities. Yeah. So, so I looked up while you were chatting. So it does George Pepo. Yeah. Oh, George. Pepo. Yeah, George yeah, that's and, right. Yeah, him and Tim Noaksmith, the CCO. Yeah, George is it. the one that you hear talking. Um, the other guy's much quieter. Yeah. And uh, their funder, Blackbird, the venture capitalist firm, it says that WOW is building the Nestle or Heinz of cellular agriculture. We love the scrappiness of the team at the hustle, nearly nearly free lab space at King's School and, yeah, successfully wooed a University of Melbourne stem cell researcher to join their team, so on and so forth. And, yeah, these guys actually think they're doing good. But one has to go back to the root of all of this. We have similar noises here. We have agri-tech in New Zealand pushing this. We are talking of software as food, and I don't even know what that means. Word salads here. All of this, I think, and you've explained it in your blog, we go back to the same old players, World Economic Forum, United Nations, and the World Economics uh, Forum's white paper, Transformation of Food Systems. Yes. They've all seized on an opportunity, a bandwagon, hitched their star to it, and that's it. Yeah, and it's all under the public-private partnership model, um so you know we are the people who pay for it so you know so it's a similar like CSIRO is funding these you know through their venture capital firm they'd be using government you know they'd be using taxpayers money to do that so we're always so yeah the World Economic Forum and the FAO the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations have a paper transforming um food systems so and then in that it goes into just that it needs to be lab meat and they talk about breast they talk about sort of lab breast milk um, so all the examples they give of, you know, of what what sh- what needs to come is is lab created food. Nothing is secret anymore. No secret breast milk. No, no. And so then they do. They've got a one hundred million farmers. So they've created an initiative. Oh, sorry, one yeah, one hundred million mm-hmm. farmers. And it's basically how global corporations can partner with government and invest in synthetic biology and biotech initiatives. So there are groups that are are screaming out. Like Africa, I haven't looked so much at India, but I know India is, you know, part of the Green Revolution as well. So you've got Rockefeller and you've got Gates and you've got Bayer Monsanto and Syngenta and all of these guys come together in these big green revolutions and they've gone in and created massive monoculture, pesticide-laden, synthetic um, GMO seeds. And they went, and I've looked more at Africa, and so they've gone into there and they have, they, you know, pay for, they put people in certain places and they pay for studies and they work with the government. And and basically the, the small farmers in Africa have been screaming out. I think it was like 40 million farmers came together to say, get out of our country, you're destroying us. And yet you'll still see the United Nations and everyone else virtue signalling about the Green Revolution being wonderful. But now, see, they've got, they've got crispered seeds so they can genetically edit and scissors, like it's called a genetic scissors. So they're bringing in these climate-resilient or climate-smart seeds that don't need pesticides and use less water. And in and I do not know the technology yet as to how they make them pesticide-resistant, but I think it's very much worth having a look at. 
So what they're going to do, I think, so in Africa already they're starting to hone in on them to make the African countries have to use those climate-safe seeds. So you're no longer able to use, you know, seeds you can share and they're not patented. So we're looking at a system where I think 100% of our food systems over time are going to be patented and controlled by a very, very, very small amount of people at the top. And you've got all the actors within there and it will all be under climate change and planetary health. So even Rockefeller has the planetary health. that It's a way of combining the climate change agenda, food systems, land use, um, health, you know, all the five, you know, all the big things about just being a human being on this planet, they want to combine it into this planetary and, and the economy, combine it into this planetary health model and absolutely have 100% control over it. I did want to also mention, because I don't think it's on many people's radar, in September, our leaders are coming together at the United Nations Summit for the Future and they are going to sign a pact. And that pact is going to be that they want to speed up and, and put more money into the UN SDG goals and bring more young people into the fray. So that's that sort of young people coming in and becoming young change leaders um, and, and a number of other things that's concerning. So I, it, it, and it's basically going to be a global governance system where every single aspect of our lives are going to be governed through the United Nations down through our government. And, and the United Nations, of course, has got a partnership with the World Economic Forum, the 1,000 largest corporates in the world. So you're looking at corporate control through the United yeah. Nations. It's very clear. It is very clear. Yes. But, of course, we've got most of our politicians um, would just say we're crazy. Uh, <laughs> that argument's crazy, uh, Kate and Jaspreet. Uh, we hear it. Uh, they're very timid around this sort of rhetoric. They don't like it. It pushes, it makes them feel very, very uncomfortable. And yet they're the ones allowing people from our own country, our representatives, to go to the United Nations and join in these forums and make make resolutions and uh, and and some support the text that comes out of these um, these forums. It's interesting to me as well, and just changing a wee bit, that the likes of Tyson Meats and Cargill and other big players are involving themselves in cell-cultured uh, meats in California through Epic or through Upside Foods or in Israel is another company. Yes, let me see if I can find it. No, I just can't find it instantly. There is these other players, uh, uh, companies in the Northern Hemisphere are really working in this space. Um, but it amuses me uh, how meat, red meat companies are involved in it as well, yep. real meat companies. And you wonder if it's just virtue signaling and time wasting to see it off, or is it um, is it real? I'm just putting a being a fly in the ointment here because I think I know the answer. But um, you'd wonder why they would allow the boards of directors of those companies would allow this to even get traction within their businesses. Yeah, the whole model's strange, isn't it? And yes. what what is it really going to look like? Um, yeah, it's a question to. I think we've got to keep our eye on this a lot. The other thing that, I mean, the other aspect to all of this, and it's also with the climate change, um, moving people, what's happening in, um, sorry, what's that town, that region in New Zealand? It's, that's already getting the climate change modelling that people, the managed retreat area. So, oh, and uh, the Capiti Coast, maybe? Capiti Coast, yes, yeah, Capiti Coast. Yeah. 
So that's also happening in Australia, but um, where they're, they're talking, starting to talk about it's all in our government documents, so it won't be too long. But the other thing that can happen when you go off these farms and, and corporates buy it um, or, you know, it get, there's, it's the natural asset corporation. So that's also through yeah. this climate change agenda, which is basically where corporates yeah. can get their hands on. Um, and this is also funded by Rockefeller. Rockefeller is through everything, the well-being, economy, every aspect of what's happening. He has he's, They're funding it. But the natural asset corporations are basically where they – Put ecosystems, eco, so the nature is is commodified into an ecosystem service. So this much nature gives this much fresh air, mm. etc. And so then they tried to at the end of last year start trading in this in the ecosystem services under natural asset corporations and put it on the the SEC. Um, but it was knocked back for now. But it will come back because if you look at any government language, it's really about ecosystem services. So as people are moved off the land or farmers are moved off the land, they're not going to need potentially as much land for the agriculture if they actually can get all this lab stuff created for us to eat in our smart cities. If the smart cities is also part of this agenda. This is the food that they're talking about for our smart cities. So with the nature that's left or they'll rewild, but they will have complete ownership over this, this land. So they're angling to be able to get the natural, the state forests, the Indigenous estate in Australia, 72% of Australia is going to potentially be under Aboriginal organisational claims by 2030. So huge amounts of land are going to get, you know, um, going to get, what would you call it, just locked up. And And then... And then they're going to be traded on the stock market. And then those corporations, if this goes through, this model, and I think it will, it definitely will, you know, at some point, um, they those corporates that own the shares in this land actually can say what happens on the land. So they have a level of ownership. And they can do that with farming land as well if a farmer signs up to it. I listen to all of this and all I'm thinking right now in my head is, what an exciting time to be alive. <laughs> the, the next decade is going to be absolutely amazing. It's, Just, it's crazy. Abs- absolutely crazy. What's surreal what we are living through. But, and, but if, you're, yeah. if you're full of self-interest and full of yeah, let's use the legislation, let's use the privilege, you'll go for that like, um, like a rabid dog. You'll be after that cash. And you can't blame, for instance, let's say a Aboriginal tribe saying, let's monet- let's have someone monetize our um, reservation. Uh, it's a bit like the, the nonsense carbon trading system. We're going to we're going to monetize natural assets like air and water. Yeah. Uh, it's just nonsense. But there will be people who will have their hand out and saying, this is all too tough. We will we just want this to come our way. And it's short-term thinking. It's not. Mm. It's it's very selfish thinking. No, but, but. seriously, I mean, I, I look at the previous decades and all other things. I've lived, through, lived a very boring life. The next few years are going to be very, very exciting. Mm. It's funny you should mention Rockefellers and that they are everywhere. They are literally everywhere. Many of the officials right now, the top ones in the UN, have be, have come through the schools. One particular one, since you mentioned Africa, I can just rattle off is Agnes Kalibata. This woman was the UN Food Envoy for the UN Food Summit in 2021 picked up from a Rwandan refugee camp. And then we had our New Zealand mainstream media do an article about her in 2021. Agnes Kalibata's uh, amazing, you know, road to the current place. And they said in Uganda, university education for, you know, was hard to get for someone in her place. And said, I did a master's paid for by the Rockefeller Foundation. And when I finished my master's, they asked me if I wanted to do a PhD. And again, I said, why not? 
And this woman was the agriculture minister of Rwanda. Rwanda has an average life expectancy, just over 60. A third of their children, a third under five, are malnutrition. This is a woman, you know, where agriculture ministers like Australia and New Zealand, they go and pay homage to her, or they did when she was the UN food envoy, and all paid through by the Rockefellers. And our ministers, all those who go to these, they have absolutely no qualms. But yet, here it is, right in your face, a woman who was responsible at least in some part during her term in destroying Rwandan agriculture, is telling the world leading countries on how to do better agriculture. Yes. God, the hypocrisy. And, and Rockefeller is very much um, behind the climate agenda, has been for a very long time. For a very long time. Crafting the climate agenda. So, yes, Rockefeller is really important to keep an eye, well, to understand. So th this is like, this is not on food, but this is the way they're wrapping everything around. They also have the Wellbeing Alliance, which is Rockefeller funded. So it's where you you change the economy. So it's based on wellbeing metrics mm -hmm. and, and that's coming into, that's come into Australia. Um, and so then they've got the little hubs in all the countries and whatever else. Now, I think this is potentially linked into social impact bonds, which I've been looking at, which Treasurer Chalmers is backing big time from the start of last year, which is basically where corporates actually invest in social welfare programs and then get a financial return from people's suffering and the government and the people pay. So rather than community centres getting money from the government, they run programs specific to the oh. people that they work with. We actually now have an investment an investment um, model where people, and, and so those same corporates, entities like Black, Blacks, uh, not Black, no, not Blackbird. What's the other one? Not Blackstone. Um, Blackrock. Blackrock. Blackrock is on, and so it's Blackbird. They're on the Treasurer Chalmers Investment Roundtable. So you've got these guys in there. So if we just even think about what happened during COVID and how people, there's been an enormous transfer of wealth through COVID and the policies and people have become much more vulnerable. And you can see people are starting to really slide out of being able to have own, home ownership and everything else. So you've got this corporate model where there's corporates in there and they, they would have the power. They would have the power versus the government, you know. So they're they're in their directing policies. Then they're actually also making money off the effects of the policies. When people get broken, they come in according to how they want to fix those people, and they make profit returns. Yeah, and we we are seeing that misery now here. To just this uh, weekend gone, we had uh, the Cluta area not far from Don and me that Cluta ratepayers can expect compounded rates increase of 49% to 80% over the next three years. Mm. Can you imagine? Yeah. Candle, yeah. how disgraceful is that? But yet that's that's what ratepayers are going to face. 49 and the, and the insurance is going up. Like So that's what I saw on the World Economic Forum website, and it was Australian companies, uh, climb, I can't remember their name, but they put out a paper saying one in 25 homes uninsurable by 2030 yep. in, in yep. Australia. That's uninsurable. Then there's just that people can't afford it. You know, there's a whole other cohort. Yeah, it's, it's skyrocketing. Ours went up, and we asked why, and they said climate change modelling. We asked, well, what's your climate change modelling? Like a month ago, we haven't heard from them. So, you know, like people, it, I, I guess what I really want to see people doing is actually challenging. Yeah. Don't just take that. Actually ask, what's your climate change modelling? And, and start to really have a look at how we're being charged too much. Same with smart meters. I've got somebody who I saw 
just put a post up and they put their own little meter on. So they've got the smart meter going, clocking off on the electricity usage, and then they put their own one on. Their own one says a much less amount of electricity being used than the smart meters. We, we're going to have to start challenging things. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, I'd just say on that, and I'm not defending that, uh, by the way, um, Kate, but having been involved in the electricity sector in New Zealand, at least that is audited significantly um, uh, there's um, a sample of uh, meters taken out every year and audited at least in the old meters if it, you know I, I have to say uh, maybe in the new smart meters we trust them a lot more so good you put the put that on my radar um, it's interestingly though interesting though that in uh, the last five years we've had prime ministers of both countries and the United States and France and Canada all talk with the same flaky language when they when they become uh, leader. It is we're going to have a just transition. We're going to have well-being budgets, and we're going to build back better. Exactly, and, Don. And, and then how can they say that people who they if you look up any government policy that's coming into Australia, you will find the United Nations um, policy behind it. So it's yeah. it's not it's it's transparent. They are definitely just taking policies that are crafted by the World Economic Forum and the United Nations and putting them into place in our governments. Have a look, and, and Jasper will back that up, so I'm going to beat her to it. Um, you know, every uh, everything I read these days talks about being sort of in sync with the United Nations SDGs, mm -hmm. and sometimes they even do use the WEF stuff. So for, for our politicians who deny that that's in the, uh, in the public arena, um, I think they are frightened. Yeah, they're they are either donkey deep in it, or they're frightened of being caught out with uh, their inaction to stop it. And and my view is, the protection of national sovereignty is fundamental, mm. and we just don't seem to have that ethos uh, strong enough in our in our governance structures in this country, and I think in yours as well. No, definitely not. Definitely not. It's only a couple of politicians speaking like that. Yes, and, and this all leads into so the climate change narrative about having to, you know, be managed retreat and everything else and where people are going to be put into, which will be resilient, resilient cities and whatever else, which is smart cities. There's just one prime example for people that want to seek. So the food connects up to all of this. And so there's one prime prime can example. It's kind of like a big example. It's not necessarily what's going to happen in Australia and New Zealand, but it's the NEOM, NEOM um, smart city in Saudi Arabia that's that's being built. And that is, but this Ooh. is the pretty much the model. So they started off, it's they started off with it's going to was going to be the line, which was 170 kilometers long and 200 meters wide. And that's been changed somewhat, but basically it wants to put, I, I don't know the exact amount of land now it is, but it's a car-free city and it's large enough to house 9 million residents within walkable communities within all with all basic services within a five-minute walking distance. So this is the sort of model that they've got. And then you can, and then they call that sustainable because 95% of the land and sea will be protected. So people won't be on 95% of this area yeah, well, land, well, and that's why it's sustainable. That's why it's sustainable. And then they have a food system. So if anyone wants to see the model, it's a good model to look at. Their food system is Topian, T-O-P-I-A-N, and they are re redefining food production, distribution and consumption 
Um, so it'll be climate-proof agriculture, regenerative agriculture, no novel foods, which is this lab foods, personalised nutrition, which I think is, I need to understand more about that, but it's all about genetically altering everything, sustainable food supply and ESG. So pretty much you've got your, um, you know, your, your locked-in city, your locked-in place that people just live packed and stacked. 95% of the land is free or would have a lot of renewable energy over it, I imagine. And then you have your food in some sort of laboratory in some sort of precinct area that gets fed into the smart cities. Good Lord. Yep. It's uh, all my sci-fi sci stuff. But, hey, look, <laughs> I, I, I'm not scared of the evolution of ideas. I mean, I haven't, you know, I'm well through my life. But um, the evolution of ideas is a, is how we got here, effectively. We wouldn't be having this this call in um, if it wasn't for ideas. So, you know, I, I read a book years ago called The Rational Optimist by Matt Ridley. He's a British peer. And it just says it all for me. It's really simple. It is about ideas and the good bits hang around, the bad bits don't. Um, hopefully common sense prevails, Kate. It's all it's all up to us, though, to put that pressure back on our governors. And currently they're getting away scot-free. Jasper Eats Council, um, I look at them and I think they're in a daze. Mm. There's only one person out of 12. And I, yeah, I'm looking at her right now and she's the only one that's sort of Eyes wide open. The rest are just living in a dreamland. I don't think they know what's going on. I think we know more than they know. Yeah, I think most people come to council with very genuinely, you know, from the right place. It is, as Dawn, you've said often in your, you know, another life, just being micromanaged, micromanaged by people around you and sort of being led into a direction. But hey, as I said, there's some very exciting times ahead. Kate, what's next for you at Community Voices Australia? Uh, well, I think, yeah, we're still going to really look into this food. I want to be putting in submissions as much as possible um, and educating people. So in the Central Coast where I am, we are going to be an agri-tech. We're, we're being transformed into um, a megacity, a global megacity. So we have Amazon moving in on us and, you know, different things happening there. And we are going to be a precinct for agri-food. So this is partly why I want to get my head around this because I, I really we had we were the food hub we were the food bowl for Sydney the Central Coast and we have wonderful wonderful small scale farmers here, so I am a hundred percent committed to raising awareness as to what actually is in the works um, through the University of Newcastle, um, which is the United Nations has the United Nations arm in it and they're moving they've got a food lab in our Central Coast and moving more into the Central Coast. So there's a whole bunch there I want to stay really focused on and just really um, I, also the climate change. I went to a council meeting the other day, which was a community consultation regarding the, I don't know what it was called, the sea, the water strategy for the Central Coast. Managed retreat was on the, managed retreat was up there, but people don't even know what that means. So I, I find it, you know, reprehensible that this is all happening. I guess the main thing I've been for the last four years is at least be honest about what you're doing, you know, at least from the top, tell people what you're doing. Stop. The vast majority of people have no idea what's what's in the works and what's even in the government documents. And that really, and then they, they have the gall to actually say, we care about the community and we want to hear your voices. Ooh, and yes, it's yes. like, it, it really, that hypocrisy is what's, don't virtue signal while you're doing it to us. <laughs> you know, yeah. like I think that's what really gets me. Yeah, Absolutely. we're from the government and we're here to help. We know uh, that's a saying that was well used um, decades ago. Um, it's as true today. 
trust that at your peril. Yes, anyway. 100%. So, Kate, we'll have to wrap up now, but thank you so much for joining us. You were listening to Kate Mason. You can find her at Substack. Just look up her name and her blog goes by the byline Deconstructing 4IR, so the Fourth Industrial Revolution narratives. And we talked about quite a lot today, the World Economic Forum, UN, food systems, and of course, lab food or Frankenstein food. If you're just only logging on, you might like to catch a replay tonight between 7 to 10 or Saturday mornings. Greenwash is on again from 7 to 10 a.m. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Kate. No doubt we'll be in touch in the future. Thank you. With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom by simply visiting www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate to make a difference today.